Uh, well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we have been going through the prophecy of Isaiah this summer, and we're going to start the second half in a couple of weeks in the fall. So it's 1 through 39 in the, in the summer, 40 through 66 in the fall, and you can kind of divide Isaiah pretty evenly there at that chapter. It really changes tone in the second half. And so we're here now at the conclusion of the first half, and chapters 36 and uh, all the way to 39, those last chapters, they have uh, a different flavor from the rest of the first half. So the rest of the first half is mostly poetry. And as you can tell here, now he's moving into prose. This is more history. And it's a little known fact about Isaiah that you have this in the middle, you have this historical interlude kind of between the first two halves. And it's actually, uh, it's a surprising thing, um, but it's also very important to the nature of the prophecy that this be here. Because um, much of the first half of Isaiah is Assyria, the, the, the empire of Assyria, the Assyrian empire, the strongest empire of this day, they were threatening Judah. They were from the north coming down, threatening Judah, the people um, of God where Isaiah lived. And so God, through Isaiah, keeps promising his people that there will be deliverance. So I'll, I'll read three different verses here. In Isaiah 10, 12, chapter 10, verse 12, God says to his people, I will punish the king of Assyria and his arrogant heart and the boastful look in his eyes, I will punish. And then four chapters later, 14, 24, I will break Assyria, I will trample him and his yoke shall depart from my people. In other words, his oppression shall go away. And then chapter 31, verse 8, Assyria will fall by a sword, a sword not made by humans. So in other words, God is going to suddenly strike down Assyria right when all seems lost. And um, sure enough, next week we're going to see that, that Assyria does indeed fall to the sword of God. It's a really amazing passage. That's next week. But in the meantime, in this passage... God's people have to trust his word. Uh, they have to trust those three different verses I just read. And there are others as well. But basically, this passage is a war between words, uh, a war of words, if you will, where you have, on the one hand, the Assyrian Empire, are, are, they're threatening and intimidating and they're bullying God's people, pressuring them to surrender and give up. And then the kingdom is saying... Um, the king Hezekiah is saying, no, do not give up hope. Do not lose heart. Don't give in to the intimidation. God is going to deliver you just like he said. So it's this war between two voices in their heads. And uh, I want to look at that war of words that I think also goes on in our heads. Um, that there are these two uh, different voices. And I've called uh, one of them, if you haven't been here before, I call it the empire it could be the Assyrian Empire, like you see in this passage, but it could also be uh, a different kind of empire, the uh, empire that stretches across all time. It went from Egypt to Assyria to Babylon uh, to Greece, Rome, on and on and on. It's still here with us today. It's like the system or the powers that be. So that uh, voice is always a voice of intimidation and bullying you and threatening you and condemning you. And then on the other hand, you have the words of the king, of the kingdom, which is a, a word uh, of trust, a word of confidence, a word to give you boldness in your life. Those, those counter uh, words, a war of words. So first, the words of the, uh, the empire. 
And it says um, in verse 1 that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah. And the most powerful city of the fortified cities was called Lashish. So he came up against all the fortified cities and he took them. And the, the final one that he took in exactly 701 B.C. was the city of Lashish. And I actually was in the British Museum a few years ago, and I saw this uh, room in the British Museum entirely devoted to this incredible stone carving. This is about as tall as these walls, and it's 55 feet long. So it stretches around the different walls of this room in the British Museum. And um, it was actually in the inner chamber of, of King Sennacherib's uh, royal palace. So it was very important to him. And um, he was very, very proud of this particular victory over Lashish. Because at the bottom of the, uh, of the, of the carving of this great battle, it says, uh, Sennacherib, the mighty king, the king of the country of Assyria, is sitting on the throne of judgment before the city of Lashish, giving his permission for its slaughter. And you see all this slaughter going on in the picture, all these carvings of people um, who are Hebrew people being killed. And it's just one of those things in the Bible where when you see it, you kind of get chills because you realize these things really happened. Now, I know that people who are skeptics could say, well, there are certain parts where archaeology seems like it contradicts the words of the Bible. And I, I, I'll grant that. There are seemingly difficult things to reconcile. But by far the majority of cases, archaeology will support the claims of Scripture. And this is one of the most powerful that exactly in 701, this battle did happen. That verse 1 has been proven by archaeologists. We can see it today. You can go and see it in the British Museum. So that's just happened. And now the empire has come to the very center of Judah, to the citadel itself, and is going to finish the job. So in verse 2, it says, The king of Assyria, he sent the Rabshakeh from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, with a great army. And we know that that army was 185,000 troops. So imagine you're Hezekiah standing in the middle of Jerusalem, on the walls of Jerusalem, and you're looking out, and here comes an army of 185,000. And you've gotten word from your messengers that already Lashish has fallen, and so it's basically just this one, um, one little tiny city. Like a bird in a cage is the way that some of the... Um, the Assyrian documents read. that they, they say that they had him surrounded like a bird in a cage. And if you notice, the, the king himself, Sennacherib, does not come to Jerusalem. He sends this guy that uh, old Bibles thought that it was the name of a guy. The, the guy's name was Rabshakeh. But later, since then, we found out through history that, that there's some guy called the Rabshakeh who was like the secretary of state. And, and that this very highly trained man uh, would be sent to cities, and he was kind of a pro professional trash talker. So he was really skilled in rhetoric. He would learn the culture of the people that he was going to so that he could really hone his skills and maximize verbal intimidation. They paid these Rabshakas a lot of money to do this well. And you can understand why. The empire figures if we can scare people enough through words of intimidation then we don't actually have to attack the city. We can just make the people of the city just surrender to us. So it could save a lot of lives. And indeed, it was very effective. It was a very effective tactic, not just for the Assyrians, 
But in all empires, um, the Rabshakeh would come, he would stand there, uh, he would mock the people, and then they would come out of the city, a lot of people, they would run out of the city, um, they might like jump over the wall and climb down the other side, or sometimes people in the city would open the gate and let the Assyrians in, because they were so frightened by the Rabshakeh. Sometimes the king would actually surrender, they would raise the white flag. But uh, the fact is that these words of intimidation and bullying and threatening and condemnation, they, they have a physical effect on people. They create uh, physiological symptoms in people. They make people do things. They're very powerful. So that phrase about sticks and stones you know, can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. It's not true at all. That words have enormous power. The Rabshakeh asks in a kind of a mocking way in verse 5, do you think that mere words are a strategy and a power? And he's basically mocking them, the, the Hebrews, for thinking that the words of God actually are kind of a power or kind of a strategy or a way out. But uh, ironically, he is using words right there himself as a strategy and a power. So yes, the answer is yes, that, that uh, mere words, you should take out the word mere there, that, that words are very, very powerful. And if you're married, um, or if you've dated someone seriously, um, or if you have a father or mother, and that's probably everybody here, um, then you have known how words will wound you. They have enormous power. And of course, the Assyrians knew this. I think about um, the Rabshakeh like a bully. And, uh, you know, in high school, some of you have been bullied. Some of you were the bully. The, the, this big guy, sometimes on the football team, who would go around kind of bumping into people, knocking them down, so you've got a problem or something, that kind of thing. Happened to me. I was not the bully. I was the one bullied. And uh, the bully knows that by doing that, that he doesn't have to fight. A lot of times these bullies are kind of cowards, but he figures if he can just intimidate people and kind of bump into them and knock them down and threaten them and stand over them, then, um, then those threats will, will frighten people into submission. It's kind of like the, the, the moment in the superhero movies where the villain, like Lex Luthor or the Joker, um, is standing over the opponent. Maybe it's Loki with, uh, with Thor. And at that point, they could easily kill the superhero, but they, they take about five minutes to go through the speech of intimidation and bullying, um, which is always their ultimate demise. But that's what's going on here, that Assyria is, is kind of standing over the people of God and using words to debase them, to mock them, to make them feel inferior and to emasculate them and to enfeeble them. And that has always happened when a, a dominant nation um, has conquered another nation. It certainly happened in the course of American history uh, with minorities of all kinds. Um, whenever there's a powerful nation, they always do that. They use language and words to, um, to marginalize other people. We certainly saw this a few weeks ago. It's always what the empire does. They use language and words. Um, he, he never calls Hezekiah king. Uh, the Rabshakeh is very skilled, and the six times he call, talks to Hezekiah, he never calls him king. He just keeps calling him Hezekiah, just like a puny little man. Whereas in uh, the references to Sennacherib, he is called the great king, the king of Assyria, uh, verse 4, verse 13. So even there, that he's, he's degrading uh, the, the king of Israel. And he also denigrates the God of Hezekiah. 
as if God uh, were a puny tribal deity like all the other gods. So in verse 19 and 20, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad of Sepharvim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who is this feeble little Yahweh that he should deliver? You know, so he's mocking um, the king. He's mocking God. And if you know the Bible um, very well, there, there is this character called the, the Satan, or the Satan in Hebrew. And it, it, it is uh, the Satan, rather than just, like, that's his name. Because that word uh, Satan in uh, Hebrew means the accuser. So he's like the Rabshakeh of Rabshakehs. He's the one who, who always is bullying people with his words. Uh, his favorite activity is to threaten and intimidate people and condemn people. That's what he loves to do. More than killing people or making, you know, young child's uh, head spin around and stuff like you see in horror movies or make temperatures drop or flies come out of walls or blood. What the, the Satan does is he accuses you. He gets you in your thoughts, in your brain. And in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 1 Zechariah says, God showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And the Satan, the Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. And that just shows you in in the book of Revelation, it's the same thing. That day and night he stands there uh, condemning the children of God. That's what it says in uh, the book of Revelation chapter 12. That that's what he's doing. He's just accusing, just pouring out lies and accusations. In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 11, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Remember that your sins are forgiven. Remember that your sins are forgiven, implying that usually we don't remember that. And then he says, uh, Remember that lest the Satan get a foothold, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Implying there, Paul is implying there that one of his devices is to make you think that your sins are not forgiven. That uh, what he wants you to feel very deeply uh, is the uh, guilt of your sin. Now, he doesn't have to make up the sin, but he can take that guilt and just drive it into you and twist it like a dagger and make it so that you cannot get that thing out. That's what the Satan does. That's how he gets an advantage over us. And if you look at these uh, accusations, uh, verse 9, just think about Satan, the Satan, saying these things. How can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants? That's a kind of a denigration of the Hebrew people. Uh, basically, he's saying you can't uh, you know, master anything. You, you, not even a single low-ranking officer could you repulse. In other words, like you know, all the, the enemies you have in your life, maybe it's your temper or your lust or your gluttony. Um, And he's like, why are you even trying to fight this stuff? You have not a single bit of power against those sins. And then in verse 10, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? He's so clever. His rhetoric is so good. And so is the Satan's. Uh, The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. In other words, God is not on your side. God has told me to come and say these things to you. I'm speaking on behalf of God. You're a liability to God. You're not God's. He's opposed to you. I'm with God. 
And then in verse 14, don't let anyone deceive you. God cannot deliver you. In other words, you're unredeemable. You're undeliverable. What you've done is too bad and you might as well give up. He's always trying to make you give up and surrender. That's the strategy of the Satan. That's the strategy of the Rabshakeh here. And um, the, the empire knows your native tongue. He knows, he knows your language. He knows where to hit you. Um, he knows exactly what works. And so the Jews plead in verse 11, please speak in Aramaic, the, the international language that the people don't know. Please don't talk to them in the language of Judah. Verse 11, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall, because it'll scare them. So stop speaking these things in our native tongue. Please switch to the international language of Arabic that, um, that they don't know, Aramaic that they don't know. And then the Rabshakeh says, no, that's the whole point, is I'm intentionally speaking in their language. I've learned their language. I mean, he had to learn Hebrew to speak these words so that I could terrify all of you in your native tongue. In verse 12, he says, You who are doomed uh, to eat your own dung and drink your own urine. And actually, that did happen sometimes when a city was besieged. Because eventually, um, there would be no food left, there would be no water left, and they would have to resort to that. And so the Rabshakeh is like putting right in front of their minds the, 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 the greatest catastrophe of all. And we all kind of catastrophize like that. We go to the worst possible scenario. And that's what he's doing here. So just think about, in your life, probably this week, maybe today, the way that you have let these accusations come against you and, and receive them without really fighting back against them. I um, made a really big mistake this week. It was a low point in my week, for sure. I hired this guy, poor guy, to come and to trim our uh, crepe myrtle tree, which is it's actually a bush. Crepe myrtles are bushes, but ours is so big, it's really like a tree. And it hangs over the yard and over the cars, and it just drops this nasty stuff all over. So um, Margie, my wife, told me very specifically and repeatedly, whatever you do, don't let them cut back too much, especially, um, you know, not some of the lower branches, because that tree, I love that tree. It's like a family member to me. So um, when the guy comes out, I was trying to explain to him about the tree and what you should and should not cut. And the very first cut was to this massive lower branch. And I was watching him, and I was kind of paralyzed. And I don't know exactly whose fault it was, but as that thing came down, um, I realized that was the very branch. That's her favorite branch. That's the swinging branch that our children swung on when they were little. And now it's like cut off on the ground. And so uh, Margie came out and uh, she was devastated and deeply, rightly hurt by that, personally hurt by that. And um, I tell that story mostly because I just felt this overwhelming condemnation. And it wasn't the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you that. It was, um, it was a weird kind of guilt. And you know, you know when it's one versus the other. This was definitely the kind of Rabshakeh coming out um, and just like pounding my air. The embarrassment of it. The shame of it. And I couldn't snap out of it for you know, a couple of hours. We even went to the pool. We were going to have this really fun time as a family at the pool. And I just spoiled the whole time by being in this weird attitude where I was really mad at myself 
But I wasn't really repentant at all, and I was mad at her as well. And it was like the accuser knows exactly the thoughts to put into my head that will embarrass me and paralyze me. And uh, my brother used this word infantilize this week. I had not heard of that word. Infantilize. To make you like an infant, I think, is what that means. So that is the way that um, the, the Rabshakeh of Rabshakehs can get into your mind. And I know that you all have had that experience. And what the empire wants in these kind of encounters, like I've said before, is for you to surrender. Is for you to make peace with them. Verse 16, make your peace and come out. That's his whole goal. Uh, to, to basically to, to just stop fighting and to come out and give up the battle. And if you come out, we're going to give you everything. We're gonna, we promise you the moon. Verse 16 through 17, each one of you will sit under his own vine, under his own fig tree. You're going to drink the water from your own cistern. If you'll just stop rebelling against me and give up and forget about God, things are going to start going right for you. That's what the empire says. So those are the words of the empire. Intimidation, bullying, condemnation, to make you give up, to make you quit. And then the counter words from the kingdom, uh, the words of, of the king. In this case, King Hezekiah, who, by the way, was one of the good kings who was not like his dad. Uh, His dad Ahaz was a bad king. We saw that earlier in um, Isaiah 7. But Hezekiah, his son, tore down the high places that his dad had put up, or at least his dad had allowed to be put up. So in verse 7, you see the high places and the altars were removed by Hezekiah. The Rabshakeh obviously did his homework, and he found this out, that Hezekiah had done this. And uh, if you have never heard of the high places in the Bible, they're all over the Old Testament. I used to wonder what the heck was a high place. Uh, obviously, they're, up in the, they're high. They're in the mountains. And so up in the mountains, in every culture ever, uh, the mountains were very, have always been spiritual. So that's always when people have gone to the mountains to worship. There's shrines in the mountains. You feel like you're closer to God. And so the high places were where the Israelites would go and they would make sacrifices. They would have shrines to the gods of, uh, of war, the gods of prosperity, the gods of thunder and rain, the gods of fertility and sexuality, Baal, uh, all the gods of the nations. The Israelites, trying to cover all their bases, would go up and make sacrifices to all the other gods, like the god of, uh, of Assyria, for instance, just to make sure that they've got everything covered. And so when Hezekiah became king, he said, no more high places. I'm tearing them all down. And uh, the Rabshakeh knows that that happened, and he implies that it's because uh, Hezekiah did that that they're losing. And that would make sense that he would think that as a polytheist, that the Rabshakeh would do that. He would have shrines to every god. They probably had a shrine to Yahweh in their temple also, you know, as one of umpteen gods. But Hezekiah trusts uh, the word of God enough to to go ahead and take down the high places. He trusts God. Um, He trusts the word of God. And not only that, but he wants to inject that same kind of trust that he had into the people of God. He's standing on the wall, and his people are behind him, and he, uh, you don't actually hear him speak in this passage, but you hear him indirectly speak. So for instance, look at verse 15. It says, Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Which obviously implies that Hezekiah is urging them to trust in the Lord. 
The Rabshakeh says, don't let him make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given to the hands of the king of Assyria. So obviously, uh, that's what Hezekiah has been telling them. He's been probably repeating the promises of Isaiah. Uh, I will punish the king of Assyria. Verse t- uh, 12, uh, chapter 10, verse 12. Chapter 14, verse 24, I will break Assyria. His yoke will not depart. Chapter 31, 8, Assyria will fall by the sword, not made by man. So in other words, Hezekiah keeps repeating uh, these promises that he heard from Isaiah because uh, in spite of the Rabshakeh's mocking question, Hezekiah knows that mere words are a strategy and a power for war. They have always been. If you think about the words of Winston Churchill uh, to the people of England on a radio broadcast that made them stand strong and continue to fight against the Nazis, words have always had enormous power. And Hezekiah knows that. He knows that words are a strategy for warfare and they're a power for war. And you should know that. You should know that in the way you speak to people, that your words can encourage people incredibly. They can also destroy people, but you can inject this kind of confidence and trust in people through your words. And the last thing the empire wants is for you to trust God. That's really the end game. As I said earlier, the end game for the empire is that you would not trust God. And so in 15, basically the Rabshakeh says, please, please, please do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Because uh, the empire wants to make you feel like you're insane for believing these things. Uh, Haven't you had somebody uh, ask you the question that um, the Rabshakeh asked in verse 4, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Especially when things are bad, uh, when you're like a loser, as the Israelites seem to be losers here. When you feel like your life is failing and somebody says, why are you trusting in this God? Um, you know, can't you see you're surrounded here? That's what the Rabshakeh is saying. Don't you realize you're completely outnumbered? We have 185,000 troops surrounding your city. God is obviously not fighting for you. He is not on your side. He has let you down. And... Hezekiah says, uh, no, we, we continue to trust in the Lord. Continue to trust in the Lord. Believe that he will deliver you. The book of Acts has very few prayers from the early church. The book of Acts is the story of the early church, and there's only a few times where you actually see a prayer that the early church prayed. And so one of them is in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And Peter and John have just been thrown into jail. These were the leaders of the early church. Peter and John, they were thrown into jail for talking too much about Jesus. And they were threatened into silence by the powers that be. And then in Acts 23, it says uh, they were let out of jail. They ran to their friends. They've just been threatened. They reported what the powers that be said to them. And the church heard it and prayed. Verse 24, Lord, please protect us from being unpopular and losing our tax-exempt status. That's not, what they were, that's not what they prayed. That's what American evangelical churches may pray, but that's not what they prayed. They said, look upon the threats of the empire and grant your servants boldness to speak your word. Isn't that beautiful? That They were just told, uh, don't do that. They were thrown in jail for doing that. And now... They say, give us more boldness to go out and do it again. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. And verse 25 says, when they prayed, 
the place was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So that, that prayer injected trust in them. The words of Peter and John filled them with confidence not to give in. We were praying on Wednesday night as a family, and um, my family always gets a dose of whatever I'm preaching on um, when we're talking or praying. So I was praying for boldness and confidence, you know, just like I was studying this passage. I was praying for the uh, ecstasy of being fearless in the face of the threats of the empire. I was praying for the joy of being free from any kind of verbal intimidation. And to have that feeling is incredibly liberating and powerful. I was praying that uh, we could all be able to say brave words and hard words uh, without anger or rancor. And I was on a, I was on a roll. It was very prophetic. And then um, I got cut off at the Wendy's drive through because we were driving in the car. And so we ordered the Frosties, and then I, I kept praying, but kind of you know, stole the thunder from my prayer. But there's this word that sums up what I was trying to pray for in that prayer before I got cut off. And that word is used uh, twice in that passage in Acts that I was talking about. That word is used many times in the New Testament. Paul loves this word. And the word is uh, parousia. I've mentioned this before in sermons. It's uh, P-A-R-H-E-S-I-A. And one translation of that is humble confidence. But it's this very thing that Hezekiah was trying to inject in the people that allows you to stand firm against the accusations and the condemnation and the threats and the lies of the empire. Uh, it's, it's not being afraid of human opinion. And it's not being boastful, like I'm, I'm too good for that. It's just being humbly unafraid, where you can kind of laugh at yourself and laugh at things around you. It's not being afraid of social media backlash and not being afraid of being unpopular. That's what parousia is. And it's coming out of love. It comes out of love. Again, not out of... Um, being some kind of independent rebel, uh, avant-garde type person. It's not about that. Uh, it's a humble confidence in God. At the uh, prayer meeting on Thursday morning, we have that 6.30 prayer meeting that Austin mentioned, which I, again, encourage you to come to. It's a great time. Um, somebody prayed. They said it was under confession time, and she prayed, Lord, help me stop being whatever people want me to be. I didn't write this down while she was praying. I was also praying. But later on, it came to me. She said, help me stop being whatever people want me to be. Help me to stop letting people have whatever of me they want to have. And changing who I am from conversation to conversation. And that was really convicting when she prayed that. Because it made me so aware of how subtle these threats are. They're not necessarily from enemies, are they? Um, they can be from loved ones. But the intimidation and the semi-bullying that come at you daily from, might be family and friends. It, it could be the media. Um, it could be uh, you know, Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. But just messages. It could be neighbors or coworkers or bosses or roommates. But I love that Hezekiah says to them basically at the very end there, he just says, don't even answer him. Don't even dignify those, all that trash talk with a word. Just, uh, just be silent. The way Jesus was when he was in front of his accusers. Just be silent. Don't even answer them. Um, just ignore those words. Walk away with that parousia, that humble confidence. I love thinking about how Jesus would have read this passage. I don't know if you ever think about that. I was telling someone 
uh, a week ago, when you, when you study the Old Testament and you, you can't figure out what it's talking about, especially these really, really hard passages. There's really hard passages in the Old Testament. If you're doing that, then I would encourage you to think about Jesus sitting there under a tree and reading that passage. And he probably memorized this passage. And he probably loved this passage. I mean, he, he loved all of them. So there's Jesus, the Jewish king, right? The, the great king, kind of like incognito. He was kind of like, uh, like Aragorn, if you know the Lord of the Rings, where he's living undercover like Strider. And he's like this kind of nobody, this mysterious ranger. But really, he's the king of kings. That's how Jesus was, incognito. But he was the king, the king of kings. And um, Jesus uh, would have been thinking about how 700 years earlier, this, his great-great-great-grandfather, Hezekiah, who he must have revered. Because, you know, he was of that line. And uh, that he would have known that Hezekiah spoke these words that generated that kind of boldness and trust. The people of Jerusalem did not surrender. They did not come out. They did not unlock the gates. They stood firm. And we'll see what happens next week. But there's Jesus reading the story. And at some point in his life, maybe as a teenager, he realizes that he's going to be the one that's going to really protect the city with words uh, of trust, confidence, that he was going to create the boldness against all the intimidation, all the threats, all the lies. And he knew that his enemy was not just the Rabshakeh, but the one, the accuser, the Satan, that he was there to conquer the lies of the Satan. His very name means the Lord saves. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. So he was there to do what Hezekiah was talking about. And at some point, and it's very mysterious, when did he figure this out? that he knew how he was going to do that. But at some point he realized that uh, it was going to be by actually going to be humiliated himself by receiving words from the Satan unlike anyone has ever received words. If you read the stories of the death of Jesus in the Gospels, it's amazing how many words of intimidation, threats, bullying, condemnation are said against him. It's really weird how much Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just kind of describe all the people who just keep spitting on him and mocking him. And like, again, like the superhero that's on the ground and the villain is over them and just mocking them continuously. I think that's the way the Satan was when he had Jesus under his feet. But Jesus knew that that's how he was going to defeat the accusation that come against his people. By taking it. By entering into your humiliation, however bad it is, the denigration of an entire group of people, the degradation spoken over an entire group of people, that Jesus was there to take all of that. And that verse 15 was really what he was going to do. The Lord will surely deliver us. That's the incarnate Lord. The Lord will surely deliver this city. That's the, the new city, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. The empire, the accuser, the Satan will not win. And on the night he was betrayed by his own best friends, uh, the Lord Jesus, he took bread and he broke it and he said...